One of the top stories this week was obviously the uh, push for the politicians to agree on a budget so that there wouldn't be a furlough of hundreds of thousands of federal employees and the repercussions that would have. Uh, rest assured, you know that if they did not have passed a budget, the President and Congress would get paid, so it's okay, it's okay. Uh, but they did apparently on Friday came to an agreement and one of the headlines I saw this week was no accord in budget talks as policy fights hamper deal. And it seems like in a two-party uh, political system that uh, one party, when one party says up, the other one says what? Down. If one says left, the other one says right. Uh, they have, they, in, in all fairness to them, they come at the different issues and different political uh, arenas from different perspectives, and those different perspectives means different policies, and those different policies mean different agendas, and those different agendas mean conflict, is what it is. And that's why we have the system we have. Unfortunately, as I've thought about this week, both about preaching and about watching that story unfold, it occurred to me that sometimes I think we can observe that same kind of environment in churches and among Christians. That um, when there sh should be unity among Christians, there is often, at best, bipartisan cooperation, and at worst, just plain old open conflict. And why is that? Well, there's probably a number of reasons that we could look at, but sometimes, whether it's between churches or between individuals among churches, there is times when they don't get wrong, and though they think they're right, they think they're doing their agenda, they're doing what they feel God has called them to do, there is just sometimes ends in disagreement and conflict. As I thought this week, as we're preparing for Easter, I was thinking about uh, this, uh, this message, and then next week is Palm Sunday, and the week after that is Easter Sunday. So as we thought about this, I was thinking about what could we talk about, what could we think about in regards to Christ's life on earth before we talk about Palm Sunday and Easter. And my mind went to, and uh, as I was praying about this, to John 1, and in John 1, specifically verse 14, Jesus, it says, John says to Jesus, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, full of grace and truth. This is a summary, a, 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 a packed summary um, of the gospel message. The gospel message is that God took the initiative, took, was proactive in sending his very Son to the earth to die for our sins. And it says in there that both grace and truth were together in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Sometimes, however, we find people emphasizing grace over truth. Or they find that they emphasize, some other people emphasize truth over grace. Sometimes it's just simply an emphasis. They just spend more time on one and the other. Sometimes that people emphasize them over and against each other. And that's part of the reasons why we have conflict and we struggle within the church. And it's really an issue of the heart of the gospel, of grace and truth together. Um, as I thought about this, and I was thinking about particularly this verse 14, we, it occurred to me that because Jesus came full of grace and truth, we are, we are receivers of both truthful grace and graceful truth. I'm going to walk through just a couple verses of John, and then we're going to, I'm going to uh, talk about some things, and then we're going to spend most of our time this morning on verses 14 through 18, where, where he unpacks how Jesus came in the fullness of grace and truth, and what's the big deal. In John 1, 
the first five verses, he gives a summary statement. The Apostle John is writing a summary of the life and ministry and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he starts it off with a bang. He starts it off with a, with a big overview of, of everything. And, he, and he, he says these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. In this huge summary, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but it's important that we start right out the gate the way John does, identifying who he's talking about here. He's talking about Jesus, who is the eternal word, he calls him. He is the word. In the beginning was the word, who is both with God and he was God. We are Trinitarians in our theology. That means we believe in a God that is one God with three persons. There's one essence of God, one existence of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But we also understand that he lives, that God lives in community with himself. And he has expressed that through the three persons of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And John is starting off right now saying, I'm telling you about the, the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And he is the eternal word. He is also, John says here, he is the creator of all things. This verse, the very first verse of John, should remind us of the very first verse of the Bible, of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John obviously intentionally begins his gospel by saying the same thing. In beginning, the word created the heavens and the earth. He wants to identify Jesus as God, the creator of the universe. And Jesus also is the message of eternal life to fallen creation. He is a light shining in the darkness. And John will take that imagery later in his gospel and expand it. That there is darkness in the world because the creation has not understood what the creator has done. And his own people have not received him. But he is shining the light among his people. And so John begins his gospel with that big, with that big picture. I just want to restate it in a slightly different way. We have talked about before with Soma and others about the story of God, the story of God. And it's a simple concept of that is that the Bible, the 66 different books of the Bible, make up one continuous story. It's the story of God. It's not about us. We're not the heroes. Abraham, Moses, Paul are not the heroes of the stories. It is simply and mostly about God, written over thousands of years. And it's, even though it's broken up into little pieces and it covers those thousands of years, it's the same theme from start to finish. It's the same God. It's the same author, although many people are involved. There are many misunderstandings of the Bible. We're not going to spend time on that, but two common ones are that the, the Bible is a collection of archaic superstitious stories. Um, a lot of people feel that, especially if they're not familiar with the Bible. It's just old news. It's old stuff. It's hard to understand. Another one, which is probably more common, is that the Bible is a textbook of moral behaviors. It's a, it's a rule book. All you need to do is follow the rule book, and you'll be good to go with God. Both of those are wrong. The Bible does not claim either of those for itself. Now, the Bible begins, we, the way it's organized that we have it in it, is with Genesis, the beginning, and the book of Revelation at the end. And, and the other books of the Bible between it. And Genesis, in Genesis 1 and 2, everything is perfect. God created everything perfect. It's the way he wanted it, the way it was. And we could say it's, it's perfect. And then way back at the end, the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, guess what? Everything's perfect. There's a new heaven and a new earth. And it's exactly the way God wants it to be. And everything is working according to his order. Now, everything in between it, though, is not perfect. From, from Genesis 3 
to, uh, to, John, um, to, excuse me, to Revelation 20, everything is messed up. In other words, it's not perfect. Another way to say it is that it's upside down. If, God, if Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelations 21 and 22, the bookends of the Bible, are right side up, they're the way God wants it, Every, everything in between is reversed and upside down. Instead of, instead of God being the hero and community being perfect and there being joy and all that stuff, now it's so that we, we are the heroes. We are the ones who put ourselves before God. And God, for those, the rest of the Bible is dealing with that. We have, uh, we ha- the Bible is really a story of a right-side-up God dealing with an upside-down world. Amen. Does that make sense? Okay, so he's, he's doing with that. Now, what would happen, this is the way it really is, we live in that upside-down world. We're, we're, we're going to guess that we're towards the, closer to Revelation than we are to Genesis. Okay, that's a shot in the dark. But, but even if that's the case, we still live in that upside-down world. Now, what happens if you live all your life in an upside-down world? Well, let's just pretend, use your imaginations here, that, that these buildings were flipped. So the carpet's on the roof, the light's on the floor, signs, billboards are flipped upside-down, your TV's flipped upside-down, books are printed upside-down. If everything was upside-down and you lived your whole life in that environment, what would you think about your world? It's normal. And you would say, that's right-side-up, wouldn't you? We wouldn't know any different. We would, this is the way it's always been. It's been the way with my parents. It's the way it's going to be for my children. This is right side up. What happens if somebody or somebody show up and say, you know what? I think there's a problem here. This is all upside down. It needs to be turned right side up. What would you say about those people who talk like that? They're crazy. <laughs> they are. What do you mean we're upside down? No, this is the way it is. This is right side up. And they say, no, no, no. It's upside down. We need to flip it over. It needs to be made right. And only the upper, right side up God can do that. Yeah, we would say they're crazy. We would say they're foolish. And the Bible says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us and saved, it is the power of God. It is the gospel message is what takes the upside down lives that we live and flips them and makes them right side up. Now, and to say it another way, God created the world in Genesis 1 and 2, and everything was perfect. And in that, he had perfect community among himself with the man and woman. Woman, They walked among, they communicated with each other. There was no shame. There was no sin. Everything was great. There was wholeness. There was health. Everything was the way God designed it to be. And then sin entered the world. Sin entered through, the, through Adam and Eve and has been with us ever since. And, and in that sin comes, and I'm just, this is one way to summarize it, alienation and corruption. Sin always brings alienation and corruption. Sin always breaks relationships. Sin always breaks our relationship with God, with ourselves. We have, that's why we have guilt and shame and fear, because it breaks that. It also breaks relationships with each other, the conflict the animosity, the, the different things that go along between people is a result of sin. But sin also brings corruption. What we mean by that is that things are dysfunctional. We are, we are designed to praise God and to live certain ways, and we are dysfunctional. Therefore, we are corrupted. We're rotten. We are unhealthy, the Bible says. And salvation simply is, when, with the gospel, is to make us healthy. Now, let's just stop for a second. little audience participation. There's going to be a few times of this today. We'll see how this goes. Okay? If it doesn't go well, I'll be starting calling on names, okay? That motivates you a little bit, okay? What does alienation and corruption look like? In, your, in our lives here, okay, without naming somebody else, okay? 
What does alienation and corruption, what does sin look, what's the fruit of that? What's the result of that? How do you see sin in our lives? Give me some examples. Judgment? What do you mean? You know, we, sit on, we sit in judgment of somebody else. We judge them. We, we determine if they're right or wrong or if they pull up to our standard or not. Okay? That's a good one. Yep, that's a great analogy in that she said that um, it's sort of like a, a tiger going after the weak, weak one, leak gazelle or whatever it is they're going after. They isolate them, they're weak, they're unhealthy. So the alienation and corruption actually brings in more problems and, and you get devoured by that, which is very true in people's lives. Very true in people's lives. You know, this isn't a hard question. Sin, just naming what does sin look like in our lives shouldn't be, shouldn't be a difficult thing. Anything else before I start naming People do harm to others. There's all sorts of ways to do harm to others. Verbally, physically, financially, reputation. There's a lot of ways to harm others. Right? We, we think of ourselves. We put ourselves as the center of the universe. We're alienated. Part of that alienation is we're the center of our universe. Everybody else, including God, is outside that circle. Yeah, there's a lot of things that sin is. I, when I was thinking, okay, what does sin look like? My, my mind went to uh, um, Galatians 5, where Paul says, here's the work of the flesh and here's the work of the, of the spirit. And he's saying, Here, let me tell you guys what a way it was. And he describes the work of the flesh as this. He says, it's evident. It's obvious. You know, he's telling these guys, you, we, I don't need to go to this, but let me remind you. He says, it's sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, adultery, so- sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. Fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That's what sin looks like. That's what living in an upside-down world results in. It results in alienation and corruption. But the gospel in Jesus Christ, the gospel comes, and quite simply, the five-word summary of the gospel Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 15 is, Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. It's the most succinct message or a, a, a summary of the gospel I know of. There's, a, a, there's lots of ways to describe the gospel, but that's the most succinct. Christ died for our sins. That is grace and truth, as we'll see in a few minutes. And that brings salvation. That brings wholeness. That brings healing. And when, when the gospel shows up into people's lives, when the gospel shows up into a community of people, it brings reconciliation and restoration. It always brings, just like sin always brings alienation and corruption, the gospel always brings the exact opposite. It always brings reconciliation, putting relationships back together again so they're healthy and they're working together, and it brings restoration. It restores people to the way supposed to function. It makes them healthier. And then someday in Revelations 21 and 2 at the new heavens and the new earth, everything will be 
perfectly restored, and everything will be uh, perfectly reconciled. All those things will be put together. But we're working that way together. So salvation is that. So let me ask you this question. It's the flip of the other one. What does, what does uh, reconciliation and restoration look like in our lives? If we named sin, that's what that looks like. What does reconciliation and restoration look like? How will we know if that's happening in our life? What would we see? Yeah. <laughs> Love, joy, peace. Okay, I, I will come back to, we'll come back to that. Anybody else? That's a, that's a good summary, isn't it? Okay, that's just, it just Galatians 5, which I already tipped my hand. He, he compared the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit being uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If there is reconciliation and restoration in your life, those things will increase. Those things will become more and more evident, both as you as an individual, your family, and in us as a church. And we're working that direction. So in verse 14, let's look at verse 14. In verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John obviously turns the corner here. He's connecting verse 14 with verse 1. The wordage here is, uh, in verse 1, um, he was saying that this is the Word, the permanent state. That's the eternal Word of God, the Son of God. Now he's saying in this, that Word, that same Word, became flesh. He changed his state from being the eternal to being human. The word lived means he pitched a tent. He lived in a tent. Literally means that the word of God, the eternal word, lived in a tent for a season while he was on earth. That's what that word means. And it it should, for the Jewish readers of John's gospel, their minds would flash back, that verbiage would flash back to the tabernacle and to the temple. Okay, because that was where God's presence resided, that God's temple tabernacled, lived in a tent among them, and then in the temple. And it also will, later on in John, he will also show to the new heavens and the new earth, God's presence will live there in the same kind of way. It will be very visible in that kind of way. So it's, it's about God's presence. So this is where we get the theological concept, those, one of those big words of incarnation. Incarnation. It's not a word found in the Bible, but it describes a biblical truth. And that is, God became man in order to identify with man and in order to die for his sins. That's the incarnation. And in this incarnation, John describes that the infinite wrapped himself up in the finite. That the eternal entered time. That the creator became part of his creation. And the invisible became visible. All these things happened. And it's a mystery in many respects. We know clearly taught in scriptures what it says. But it is a mystery. How can God be fully God and yet be fully man? We don't know. But it's the clear teaching of Scripture. But also in this verse 14, he emphasizes that it's full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. We have seen the glory, the glory is of the Son, full of grace and truth. And then later in verse 17, he says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth. His emphasis, he repeats it twice, is that there's a fullness, and that fullness is of grace and truth. Another question for you. What is grace? When we we use that word, Christians use that word, what do we mean is grace? Anybody? Something we don't deserve. So it's undeserved. What else? It's unmerited favor. We don't deserve it, and we don't earn it. But it's favor, it's blessing. 
Those are very good. That's, in essence, what we mean by grace. It's God's undeserved favor. There's a way of saying it, and, um, it's, and we, examples of that would be God, that favor would be forgiveness and acceptance and security and blessings that God gives us because of Christ. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. But we get those. We receive those things from God. That's a favor. One way to understand this is this. Grace and mercy always go together. Okay, in the gospel. In the gospel, grace and mercy. There are two sides of a coin. Okay? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. You don't deserve forgiveness and acceptance and security, but that's what you get. That's grace. The flip side to that, and the reason you can get grace, is because there is mercy. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. You deserve judgment. You deserve the wrath of God. But you don't get that. And because you, you get mercy, and he's taken that upon himself, you then receive the grace. Does that make sense? They go together. They don't, we don't, in the gospel, separate the two. So grace and mercy are, are parallel, uh, united. They're twins, concepts, theologically. Then he talks about grace. Jesus came full of grace and truth. What is truth? What is truth? It came with grace and truth. What's truth? This is a harder one, isn't it? The way it really is. Regardless of what everybody else says, it's the way it really is. Right? This is a hard one. What is truth? Nathan's pretty close with what I would define truth. Not that my truth is the truth, but it's, it's the one you're going to get, okay? It's the one we're working with here, okay? Absence of falsehood. Oh, we got a philosopher on ourselves, okay? Wow, absence of falsehood, okay. Uh, what's that? The facts, the way, it, the way it really is, yeah. It, but we can perceive truth, we can perceive facts and situations differently, right? Look at politicians, right? They get the same facts, they draw different conclusions, so. The only true matter is what? The only true matter is truth is Christ. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That's right. Here, here's my definition of truth. Truth is whatever God says it is. Truth is whatever God says is true. Okay, now it's a cyclical. We believe the Bible is true and God says what's true. And it says that God says what's true. So it's, yeah, it's cyclical. There's an act of faith in that. Yeah, we'll own that. But truth is simply what God says is true, whether we like it or not, whether we believe it or not, whether we accept it or not. What, what all doesn't make a difference. It's still true because God says it's true. And, and Jesus talks about that. She pointed to, to Jesus and Christ. It's centered on Christ. Jesus praying for his disciples says, sanctify them, by, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then Jesus said, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. A number of years ago, I saw a poster, and you've probably, you may have seen this poster. It was on somebody's wall. It said, the two essential truths for human enlightenment. One, there is a God. Two, you are not him. And that's very, that is truth. It begins that there is a God, he calls the shots, not us. That's what truth is. And in 14 he says, you are full of grace and truth. And in 17 he says, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now here's the problem that all that leads up to. The problem that I think we struggle with sometimes, both as churches, interchurches, between churches and in churches, and in our lives, is that we separate grace and truth. We separate those two things whether it's intentional or not. Sometimes it's simply a matter of separating. It's simply that we emphasize one more than the other. We talk a lot more and we speak more about grace 
and we ignore truth, or we speak a lot about truth, and we ignore grace. And that's a very precarious place to be, because that's a slippery slope to get into some serious error, not only theologically about God, but also how we treat each other. Grace and truth are always interrelated. Grace and truth are always inseparable. They're uh, interdependent of each other, inseparable. The grace of God is expressed in the life and death of Jesus is always truthful. Grace is always truthful. And at the same time, the truth of God expressed in the life and death of Jesus is always gracious. The truth that comes through Jesus is also at the same time gracious. That's why I said at the beginning that because Jesus came in full of grace and truth, we are both receivers of truthful grace and graceful truth. Now I think, as I've thought about this and looked in my own life and as I deal with people, that I think particularly we have a hard time on the aspect of grace. We separate truth and remove it from grace. Most of us can say, yeah, I think that's true because the Bible says it's true. But where we, I think we struggle the most is we think of grace and we isolate it from what is true. And, and we think of grace. And, and grace is not um, overlooking sin and justice. Grace is not looking the other way. Grace is not God looking the other way and pretending that things are okay. Grace is not saying, don't worry, be happy. That's not grace. That's a lie. Truthful grace is the same thing as graceful truth. They go together. Just like grace and mercy are two sides of a coin, when it comes to the gospel, grace and truth are fit the same kind of way. If you get grace, you have to, it's only rooted in truth. If you get truth, it comes with grace. They're the same. Grace is rooted in and an expression of truth, God's truth. And truth is a source of grace given to us by God. Now I want, us, I want to think a little bit. I want to unpack this. I want to go deeper in this in that grace is truthful. Grace is truthful. And I want to give you some reasons why grace is truthful, particularly from 1 John. Grace is truthful because it never compromises the reality of who God is, both in His loving kindness and in His holy judgment. Grace is truthful because it is a demonstration of the glory of God. Grace is truthful because it is an expression of the Father's eternal love for us by His proactive, intentional sending of His only Son into the world. Grace is truthful because it is the result of a humble obedience of the Son to the Father in coming into humanity. Grace is truthful because the Word became flesh and lived among us in order to in order that he may seek and to save that which was lost. Grace is truthful because Jesus took on human flesh so that he could be the unique God-man in order to die for human sin. He had to have eternal value of being God and at the same time the human existence to identify with our sin. Grace is truthful because Jesus lived the life we should live and he died the death that we deserved. Grace is truthful because what is free to us costs Jesus a lot through the de- his death on the cross. He submitted to the judgment of God so that we don't have to. He s- absorbed the wrath of God so we don't have to. Grace is truthful because undeserved favor, the, the undeserved favor we receive was justly purchased and secured by Jesus. Grace is truthful Because Jesus' victory over sin and death are available to us through faith in Him. 
Grace is truthful because Jesus has secured for us reconciliation to God and eternal life with God. Grace is truthful in the gospel because in the gospel of God, God always is both generous to us and true to himself. Grace is truthful. John Piper put it this way. He says, truth is the way grace works. Truth is the way grace works. We cannot truly give anybody gospel grace unless they also get the truth of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins. Now, what happens when we separate the two? What does it look like when we take grace and, we don't, and it's without truth? What is, what is it like when grace is without truth? So think about it from yourselves, for other people, or for yourself and God. This, this, this is another audience participation thing here. Okay? What does it look like when we, we, want to, we want to talk about and give and receive grace, but it's without truth? What does that look like? You start making up what you think is truth, so you start including a lot more people. That's true. Yeah, flat, flattery is away. We say things, we tell people things are really going good for them, or they are doing good, or they're well, when they're really not. We say, hey, we say, you healthy person, it's great, you're doing awesome. Meanwhile, we know they're not. That's a good one. Right, they won't connect. If, if, if there is no truth, they just get grace. They won't be connected with it. It's like a physician saying, oh yeah, we can get you healthy, we can make, take the pain away, but we won't tell you about the disease. We won't, treat, we won't treat the illness, but we'll take away the pain. You won't have the symptoms. Anything else? Grace without truth really is enablement. That's the outcome of grace without truth. It's enablement, it's, and it's really no grace at all. It's really no grace. What do I mean by enablement? I mean that it's, and when we give people grace and we give ourselves grace, what we're doing is we're enabling ourselves to continue in sin and not to deal with the sin that is it's upside in our life. It's, it's perceived permission. It's perceived permission. It's not real permission, but it's perceived permission to continue sinful attitudes and behaviors. It's, it's given permission to continue to harm other people and ourselves. It's enablement because it denies the reality of sin and the harmfulness that we're doing. It, it denies the disease, if you will. It also is enablement because it denies our responsibility to speak the truth and love to people. If we're really going to be gracious to people, if we're really going to give them biblical grace, truth has to accompany it, or it's really not grace. But also, we can give truth without grace, can't we? There's people with truth, grace without truth, but we can go the other side. We can give truth without grace. What does truth without grace look like? I can't hear you. Condemnation. Back to judgment. When we have truth, but we don't give any grace, what does it look like? Condemnation, what else? What does it look like in your life? I can't hear you. Self-righteous. That's right. I, I have a standard 
and, and well, conveniently, I'm the controller of the standard, so when I'm doing okay, I can lower the, if I'm not, I can lower the standard so I'm doing better, right? We move the standard. We don't reach the standard. What's that? I can't hear you. Yep, we can, there's a lots of things we do in the name of God, but we end up punishing people and crushing people with those. Ju- Go ahead. Legalism. Yeah, it's legal in another form. In fact, that, that's what I say. Truth without grace is essentially the one word, like enablement was the other one. This one is legalism and all that that covers with it. Legalism. And it's really truth without grace is legalism and is really no truth at all. Okay? Because what it does is it brings condemnation. It brings judgment. It brings pressure to perform. It's a performance-based ethic. Now we have to do this to be accepted to God, to ourselves, to other people, or they have to do it to be accepted by us. It is being crushed under the burden of doing right and winning God's approval or other people's approval. It is, it is says that we are accepted there because we are obeyed. We confuse it. When you have truth without the grace, what, we, what that means is people are saying, I'm accepted because I obey. That's a lie. We obey because we are already accepted in Christ. It is a legalism. And yet many people... And, and I talk to many people who fall into one of these two sides. They're absorbed by grace, but they're not willing to deal with truth in their life, the truth of the gospel. Or other people who have truth, and they know their Bibles, and they're willing to beat you over the head with it, but there is no grace, no mercy. One of the things when I went to seminary many years ago, I was a pastor. It took me 10 years to get my master's degree, my MDiv. Part of that reason is that most of that time I was a pastor during that time. I learned a ton being a pastor. And one of the things I learned was to be more and more merciful with people. And I could tell the students in seminary who were trying to be pastors who had actually never been in actual practical ministry. It's been an academic. They maybe went to Bible college or college, and now they're going on to seminary. And one of the ways I could tell them is that they had no mercy. They had very little mercy. Everything was right and wrong. Well, tell people to stop that. They should just stop that. Oh, I wish it was that easy. I wish it was that easy for you. Just stop it is not the gospel. Okay? It is not the gospel. Now let me ask you. Let me ask you another question. If, if some people emphasize truth and without grace, and other people tend to emphasize grace without truth, think about yourself right now. Yourself in your seat, do you fall in either one of those spectrums? If you really looked at your life and analyzed the way you treat other people, the way you feel in your relationship with God, the way you work things out, would you say, would you evaluate, say, you know what, I spend a whole lot of time on grace, but not a lot on truth? Or do I spend a whole lot of time on truth and, and separate it from grace? Here's another question. What would you say other people say is your emphasis? What would your family, your missional community, the people who know you, if you ask them, would they say you have one of these poles as an emphasis? And, if, and, there, and non-Christians, I think, particularly struggle with this. And if you're not a Christian, you don't name the name of Christ here today, part of this talk about grace and truth can be confusing. You hear those words in Christians, whether it's here or other places or, and stuff like that. And sometimes when people first come to Christianity and hear these words, they're not familiar with the gospel message itself or not familiar with the biblical teaching, they think of grace as sort of a, a sentimental notions. It's just being nice. When we say God's grace or people need to be gracious, we're just saying, just be nice. It, but they view it really, me, many non-Christians, as weakness. 
as that don't worry, be happy philosophy, which they know is not very practical and doesn't work. They think it's a, a way, really giving grace is a way of avoiding the hard, real issues of life. Well, we're just going to be, give grace so we don't have to talk about it. Or non-Christians think, well, it's nice, I understand, that I think I get the grace, but deep down, grace by itself, it just doesn't deal with the issues, the guilt, the shame, the hurt that I have. Grace just doesn't do it. And there's a resistance to people who don't know the gospel to the word of grace because of the way it's often presented by Christians. At the same time, non-Christians, if you're here, maybe you struggle with this, is that you hear about truth. And what you think about is legalism, what we talked about. You think, truth, really? You guys own the truth? That's pretty self-righteous of you Christians to say that. Who are you to say that that's truth? What's my truth is mine and yours is yours. You struggle with this. So what you Christians are really advocating is a legalism, a list of rules to follow. Do this and don't do that is what people hear. What they hear is, do more, be better, try harder, when we talk about truth. And, and then when they wrestle with that, and I think about that, most, most Christians wrestle with that, and they say, you know what, I have enough demands in my life right now that I'm having trouble keeping up with. I don't need any more. So non-Christians often reject grace and truth. They reject the gospel because they misunderstand what they are. And we need to be clear to the people we talk with. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, you need to be clear what grace and truth really is. It is summarized in the person and work in Jesus Christ, who Jesus is. We are told in 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, he goes, for, for I delivered to you what's of first importance. Okay, I've written this whole letter to you, now I want to tell you, this is what's of first importance. It's the same way he began his letter what I was received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, and that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. That is the gospel message. Christ died for our sins. It is grace and truth together, combined, interrelated. You can't separate it. You can't, Christ died for our sins is not just grace and it's not just truth. It is truth. Christ died for sins. A real man in real time, in real history, in a real place, was nailed to a real cross, and really died, and suffered, and really rose from the dead. That's where he goes into in that later, hey, these are the people who saw him alive. It is true, it is truth, and it's objective truth, God-honoring truth. But it's also grace. Christ died for whose sins? Our sins. He didn't die for his own sins. He died for our sins. That's grace. That's mercy. It's undeserved favor in healing. Christ died for our sins. In verse 14, we saw that, um, and, um, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen the glory, the glory of his, the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then, he, and then he gives this parenthetical comment about John the Baptist. We're not going to spend the time on that. And then in verse 16, he says, And from this fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. So if you, if, if you take out verse 15, because it is a parenthetical idea, he just, he's going back to something he already commented on, which we're not going to look at. Verses 14 and 16 go together, are a continuation of one sentence. So let me read it to you. We have seen the glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So he says that fullness brings us grace and truth, and we all have received grace upon grace. The emphasis here is obviously on grace. 
His emphasis here is that, that when you get that fullness and it comes, we get grace upon grace. Grace on top of grace. Grace added to grace. Grace overflowing in more grace is his emphasis. So John, John is trying to say the key here for this grace and truth dynamic is that what you guys get is more and more and more grace. Now here's an interesting thing I read about. In John's Gospel, this is the very last time he uses the word grace in the first chapter. But in the rest of the book, in the other 20 chapters, he uses truth, truly, and true 55 times. Okay? That's one of those, some nerd did the research and figured that out, right? Okay, who counts those words, okay? But somebody did, and I appreciate them doing it, so I can tell you, okay? I didn't count. Grace, he says, you guys get, in Jesus, because he came full of grace and truth, you guys get grace piled upon grace. It just keeps coming. And it's almost like he says, you guys get that? Now let me explain it to you. And now he spends the rest of his time extensively talking about truth. Because if we want that grace to build up in our life, we want to be overflowed with that grace and that mercy and that favor by God. He says, let me tell you how Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that is his emphasis. Um, In verse 17, he says, For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. When we first read this, and I did for many years, what, what sometimes we think he's, 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 um, he's um, pitting Moses and Jesus against each other, and he's not doing that. He's not saying in this verse that Moses is bad and the law is bad and Jesus and the gospel is good. That's not what he's saying. What he's comparing in there is all that the Moses had and all that Moses wrote in the book and all that Moses wrote. But there's a difference. There is now a substantial difference between all that Moses wrote and did and now what Christ came and did. Moses reports the word, God's word, but Jesus is the word of God. Moses points to grace, but Jesus came full of grace. Moses recorded the law, that was true, but Jesus is the truth. And that's, that's John's point here, is that the, all the stuff that you guys have read and the, his readers would have read before, that's good stuff but it points to the true way, which is really Jesus Christ. And Jesus, he says that. Jesus has been, um, in, in earlier in Exodus 33, there's a famous incident in Moses' life where he has a heart for God, as a man who speaks to God. He said, God, I want to see your glory. I want to see your glory in Exodus 33. And God, I don't know if you remember the story, but God says, you know, you can't look at me because you'll die, okay, because I'm holy. So what I'm going to do is put you in a niche of a rock and I'm going to cover you and I'm going to walk by. And he says that he saw God's goodness and the afterglow of God's glory. But John says, John's comparing that Moses incident in the back of his mind with this incident of Jesus. He told Jesus, says, according to verse 14, we have seen the glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Moses got a glimpse of the backside. We get to look at it face to face. When we take communion today, as we do every time, um, I would ask that you spend a little time thinking and praying about these passages. On the communion tables, which are in the back today, there is a piece of paper that has a couple verses from this John. I would ask as you go up there today to take communion, and if you're a believer in Christ, you are welcome to take communion here. 
um, we ask you to, I would ask you to take a, just take a moment and read through this verse and respond. However the Holy Spirit, however you desire to respond to this verse, respond to, um, and give you the gift of thanks, repent, pray for somebody, pray for your situation, whatever it is. Just take communion, not just, hey, thank you, God, I'm, thanks for the snack. Um, but, but thank you, um, and let, let, just let those verses work through you, that grace and truth came through Christ. I want to conclude by reading something from John Piper. He's a pastor and a well-known author and preacher. I was reading a devotional work from him, and, and, and he was uh, a while ago, and he, he was struck by something. And the reason I want to read this to you, because he, he says he does a good job saying it, so I might as well just share it with you. But part of this is, the danger is, I want to also stress here, this isn't simply about how we are going to be gracious or truthful. This isn't simply about how we are going to do better at understanding grace and truth. Those things may be true, but part of this, it may be accurate, but part of this is that we understand where grace and truth really come from, and it comes from Christ. And twice in this passage, he talks about how it came from the fullness of God. The fullness of God, from that fullness comes grace and truth. He is the source of this, not us. We're the receivers. We're the ones blessed. We're the ones getting the unmerited favor. We're the ones getting the clarity of what Christ has done for us. But it is really all about Christ and his fullness. So um, John Piper, a, a number of years ago, overheard another man praying. And they're having a prayer time. And this man prayed the verses that we read in this passage. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And Piper goes on and says this, among other things, he says this. God granted in that moment that the word fullness, from his fullness, carry the fullness that is extraordinary in its effect on me. Why did this fullness have such an impact on me? And why is it still this moment affecting me so unusually? In part because the word from whose fullness I am being drenched with grace is the word that was with God and was God. So that his fullness is the fullness of God, a divine fullness, an infinite fullness. This word became flesh and so was one of us and was pursuing us with that fullness. And it is an accessible fullness. When the Word appeared in human form, His glory was seen. And He therefore has a glorious fullness. This Word was the only Son from the Father, so that the divine fullness was being mediated to me, not just from God, but through God. God did not send an angel, but His only Son to deliver us in His fullness. The fullness of the Son is the fullness of grace. I will not drown in this fullness, but will be blessed in every way by this fullness. And this fullness is not only a fullness of grace, but a fullness of truth. I am not being graced with a truth-ignoring flattery. This grace is rooted in rock-solid reality. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that grace is rooted in a rock-solid reality of Your truth. I pray, Lord, that You will give us a glimpse 
uh, in Christ of the fullness that, it, that hit from His fullness that comes grace and truth. Lord, as we enter or are in a time of Easter, uh, it's often um, in our busy days and lives easy to just think about that kind of thing um, on Sundays, if at all. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who are willing to stop and meditate and think about passages like John 1 that talk about you coming, pursuing us aggressively, proactively, intentionally, with your grace and your mercy and your truth. Lord, I pray for us who live in an upside-down world that you would give us right-side-up eyes, that you would allow us to see the way the world should be, the way you intend it to be, the way you intend our lives to be reconciled and restored to the way you designed them to be. I pray especially, Lord, that we can, we can be burned in our hearts and our consciences and our wills with the grace and truth of Christ, that Christ died for our sins. May we never get away from the truth and grace of the gospel. May we be, as John said, may the grace of that, that understanding be flood us, and there may there be grace upon grace upon grace, because it is your truth. And because of that, we have confidence in it. We thank you for this, Lord, and give you the glory and the honor. In Christ's precious name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.